Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. What follows is an interview conducted by Carrie Poppy. Carrie is, of course, the host of Maximum Fund's own podcast, Oh No, Ross and Carrie. In the show, Carrie and her co-host, Ross Blotcher, investigate spiritual and paranormal claims in the best way they know how. They try them out. That means looking for ghosts or joining Scientology or trying out New Age home remedies that are slightly too gross to talk about on NPR. One time, my friend Jordan and I went on their show and we vaped essential oils. Did not seem to have an effect on me. A little coughing. Carrie's guest on Bullseye this week, Julia Sweeney. You probably know Julia Sweeney from her work on Saturday Night Live. She was on the show for the first part of the 1990s. She's followed that with other interesting work. She's performed a series of monologues that talk about her life and her relationship with religion in a funny, honest way. God Said Ha might be the best known of them. What's she been up to since then? Well, she helped create a new show called Work in Progress, which is airing on Showtime, and she's in the comedy Shrill. In it, Julia Sweeney plays Vera, the mother to the main character Annie, played by Aidy Bryant. Annie is a writer living in Portland who is constantly juggling insecurities in her love life, her family life, and her job. The show also talks a lot about body image problems and how family can exacerbate them. Like in this clip, Annie has gone to visit her parents. Annie's dad, who is battling cancer, just got some good news about his treatment. And to celebrate, Annie brings him a meatball sub, you know, as a treat. But then mom gets home. Let's listen. Are you staying for dinner? No, no, we already ate. Oh, tell me you did not bring this crap into our house, did you? Honey, come on. Yeah, relax. It's a meatball sub. It's one sandwich, one day, and Dad got good test results today. Yeah, today, but that doesn't mean he's home free. We still have to worry about our health. Okay, you don't have to control every single thing that we eat. Okay, yeah, well, you know... I read your article, and I know I'm the horrible mother who forced you your whole life to eat healthy and exercise. And now all my friends are reading about it. So that's great. Well, I feel some of those things, so I wrote them. Then why didn't you come to me and talk to me about it first? Instead, you just publish it so the whole world can see it. Yeah, because that's what you actually care about. You can say it's about my health, but all you actually care about is what other people think. That is not true, Annie. Yes, it is. And you micromanage everything, and it's not just me. Now that Dad's sick, you get to do it to him, and you love it. Julia Sweeney, welcome to Bullseye. (laughs) Hello. I don't know who to identify with in that clip. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I know. I, the, okay, good. So sympathetic. That's good. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think your character in this scene and in the show at large is so she's a she's a real mix of like passive aggressive, but also really loving and genuinely concerned. Uh, or that's that's how I see her. Is that is that how you see her? Yeah, it's it's been actually a great Rorschach test for people because sometimes people will say, oh, you play the mother on Shrill, she's so horrible. And I'm like, oh. really? Is she? Am I is the character? Because it's pretty close to what I, I mean, not totally, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but is I, that. You know, it's, 
she is sympathetic. Actually, I really appreciate that they made her so sympathetic. I probably would have made her more of a monster because my mother and I battled about my weight. I think coming out of the womb, my mother said seven pounds, four, four, four ounces. I think you were really hogging down in there. I think you could, let's just We can get it down to off. seven. Yeah, exactly. So my own experience was with, with such a not passive aggressive mom, just aggressive mom about mm. weight that to me, my character on Shrill is very close to what I would be, I think. I don't know. Mm. Well, it's hard to tell. I try to okay. be very accepting about people's bodies, but sure. Um, anyway, you are a mother yourself. Do you do you think that passive aggression is just sort of inherent to parenting? Well, okay. Let me just stand up for passive aggressiveness. Okay, <laughs> passive aggressiveness <laughs> gave us civilization. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like there are times when you don't want to just be aggressively telling somebody what you think. So, I mean, of course, yes, parenting, a big part of parenting is trying to get your message across without being, putting someone on the spot, putting them in a defensive position, um, letting Mm -hmm. them know what you think without, you know, putting them in a position where they have to say they disagree even. Mm -hmm. All of that is a subtle art and the subtle art of parenting. So it's within that range, I think, on Shrill. But it has been interesting because some people think she's a horror and some people think she's sympathetic mostly the people who are my age think she's sympathetic I would say Mm. and I do do some pretty awful things that I was really fun to play um Mm -hmm. but in general I guess I just appreciate it's a more nuanced you know role than it could have been it could have been really awful (laughs) absolutely yeah you kind of frame passive aggression as the super ego our way of interacting with the world that kind of meets in the middle between what society wants from us and what we might want ourselves. Right. And the other thing is there's some things only a mother can say. I mean, like Mm. there are some things that I feel like it's your responsibility to say, because I believe other people would think, Oh, I can't say something, but your mother should definitely say something. (laughs) So, all right. You know, like I, I mean, really in my situation, it isn't about weight. That's not our issue, but there are certain things, you know, like that you want to let somebody know. I mean, so it's very complicated to be a mom and you pretty much are never going to win. I was just saying to someone, because I don't have kids myself. And I was saying, it seems like the project of parenting is pretending you don't know better when you probably know better. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's good. Do you find that in your own relationship with your own daughter or with your own mother? Wow. Well, with my own mom is such a different relationship now than it was because she's sort of, she's declining and her memory's going. So she's, mm. it's more like I'm her mom. I, you know, I take care of her money and I talk to the nurses where she's at, you know, so, but growing up, my mother was very critical of me and how I mm. looked and was really, and really did only care what other people thought. Well, she, I don't know if she knew the difference between what other people thought and what she thought. I think she, I think to be heavy was the absolute worst sin that any woman could ever make. And the reason that you could make, the reason why it was such a big sin was of course not for health reasons. It was because you wouldn't get as good of a man as you could get if you were thin. And, and in her world, 
that was success was snaring a successful man. And in her mind, successful men were looking for slim women. So when I was in high school and started gaining weight, it really was a catastrophe in our family. Like there were notes on the door and trips to the doctor and diets and, um, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. No, very heavy. So in (laughs) shrill, um, I'm pretty like, I feel like, wow, this mom's pretty good. She's pretty. Um, (laughs) Yeah. She's not, she's not saying it out. Right. What more do you want from her? Exactly. I know. Like we're on shrill to be like, well, I don't know if I'd wear that top with those pants. My mom would say, you look fat and you look terrible. And from the side, it's the worst. (laughs) So then when you first read this script that is by, um, or that, that is about Lindy West, who may have gone through some of the same things you did. Was that a breath right. of fresh air to kind of see that reflected? Oh, yeah, it really was. And Lindy and I've talked a lot about it. And her mom was, you know, difficult. Um, and, you know, her mom's about my age. So, um, mm. you know, like there's different generations going on here. But um, I mean, her mom was different, I think, because her mom actually sounded a lot better than my mom. But her mom was a nurse or is a nurse. So it was all framed as health. My mother never said the word health my entire growing up. There's nothing mm-hmm. about health. It was all about just how you looked. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Well, speaking of your growing up, um, you're probably best known as an actor and a comedian, but my, uh, my favorite Julia Sweeney <laughs> stuff is your writing and your one woman shows. Oh, and thank you. Oh, yes. And and in particular, you did this one woman show called Letting Go of God. And it's this personal story about becoming an atheist. And mm-hmm. it begins with you telling the story about uh, coming into the kitchen on the morning of your seventh birthday. Uh, we have a clip here. On September 10th, the morning of my seventh birthday, I came downstairs to the kitchen where my mother was washing the dishes and my father was reading the paper. And I sort of presented myself to them in the doorway. And they said, hey, happy birthday. And I said, I'm seven. And my father smiled and said, well, you know what that means, don't you? And I said, yeah, that I can have a party and a cake and get a lot of presents. And my dad said, well, yes. But more importantly, being seven means that you've reached the age of reason. And you're now capable of committing any and all sins against God and man. (laughs) Amazing. So... Uh, so when you were first doing this show, it was what, 2007? Uh, no, it was like 2004. Oh yeah. my gosh. I think I actually filmed it in 2006 or seven. I can't remember. Okay. So yeah. back, but then, I, I, back yeah. then in the olden days, yes, <laughs> um, it was a little scarier to talk about being an atheist in public. I, I feel like today yeah. that's a little, little less taboo. So were you scared at the time? Yeah, I did not like the word atheist. It was sort of, I felt a little bit like it was coming out of the closet and having a negative feeling about being gay. Like people I know who've experienced that, that was, that's the closest feeling that I've heard from other people. Like, I don't want to be this thing. I've had a negative connotations with this word. And yet I just can't pretend anymore that I'm not that. And Mm -hmm. it was further difficult because it was, it wasn't like, it would have been easier. Well, I'm not trying to minimize people who are in the closet and had a difficult time coming out because I know, I know that is really hard. But for me, you know, I kept thinking you can just decide to believe, or you can just 
you can fake belief a lot more easily, I think, than you can fake sexual attraction to, you know, someone of the opposite sex if you're not attracted to them. I think that's, you know, nature intervenes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But with being an atheist, it just seemed like it'd be so easy to fake it. And, sure. and, or just be like most people I know are, which is they don't even know they're atheists. They're just not religious and don't think about it. That had been, right. that would have been easier too. So it was hard to come out and just say that word. And that word, now I'm comfortable with it. But at the beginning, it was hard to say that word. Yeah, what do you think the reception would be like if you did that today in 2020 instead of in 2004? Well, in some ways it would have been worse because now that the new atheists have come and there's been a whole movement, there's also been a backlash to that movement, which hadn't Mm -hmm. happened either. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. now I feel like the people that aren't going to think it through deeply, which by the way is most people, Um, but who are generally living in a scientific world and are modern people would probably feel more negatively about me saying that now. Hmm. Because they would say, oh, are you like those atheists that are really right-wing people or whatever? (laughs) Libertarian atheists. So that that part might have been harder, actually. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. we did go through this this moment culturally where all these books came out and all these people were uh, sort of banging the drum of atheism. And I would think in some ways that opens doors to this conversation. But you're right. The, the downside is you accidentally associate yourself with the people speaking the message. Right. I mean, partly it's my own fault that I didn't push it more. But there's so few women in this that are outspoken atheists. There are some, there's lots of Mm -hmm. them, but there's not nearly as many as there are guys. So it's an easy to be harsh about group and to categorize. I don't know. I feel glad that I didn't have that to worry about when I did it. It was really a genuine show. I really followed my belief where it took me and where it took me was not to believe. And then that changed my entire life once I realized that. And really all positive ways. And it's hard to think of one negative way, but it really transformed my life dramatically. And I didn't have to worry about that part of the baggage. Anyway. What do you think now the age of reason is? (laughs) 60. Um. (laughs) You just, you just made it. You're finally responsible for your actions. Congratulations. Um, It's so funny because you know, I have so many, I have a lot of doubts about free will itself, even though that's misunderstood by so many people. And so I don't know how responsible anyone is for anything, but um, I could say 30. I don't know. <laughs> no, you know what? I'm not saying an age. There is no age. And speaking of gods, of course, you are, uh, you have a big role coming up in American Gods season three. Yes. I'm in... I would say seven or eight of the 10 episodes and yeah, I have a very important part and it was really fun. And I, I did drama. I did drama. Um, (laughs) I, well, I'm kind of a nutty old lady who owns a store and is a busy body in the town, but as the season progresses, it becomes quite serious and I can't really reveal it because it's all mysterious what happens and I can't say, but Mm -hmm. 
but oh my gosh, I had so much fun doing it. Oh my God. I love it so much. And I have to tell you that being 60 as an actress is the greatest thing that could ever happen because yeah, it, oh my gosh. Yes. For me, I mean, because the parts I'm playing now, I mean, there was just such a, to go back to the weight issue, there was so much pressure to be pretty and thin. And Mm. I was always kind of in between, like I was never, I had a manager once saying you would get a lot more work if you'd either lose or gain 30 pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, now no one cares about that. And it's really just about what I can deliver. And my characters are quirkier and odder. And I, I feel really comfortable in my skin and it's just, I'm so glad I lived to be this age because I've had so much fun the last couple of years and I've done a lot of acting on shows and I just had a nervousness and a preoccupation with worry about how I looked or if I was sexy enough or whatever enough. And that is completely gone. And it's like being let out of prison. And and it makes me a better actor too, because I'm completely doing the part and it's just a joy how new is that did it just come with 60 uh it really started two years ago when i first because i took 10 years off to raise my daughter and be a housewife my life dream which i achieved (laughs) and um and then when she went to college i moved back to la my husband retired we start we we took up the elder part of our lives And I went out and started auditioning and I got shrill and then work in progress, which is a long story, but I was kind of involved in the inception of that. And I'm so proud to be on that show. And then American Gods and I did a Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I did some voiceover and I, I just got a lot of work right away. Like it was a big shock. And in some ways I feel like Hollywood was waiting for me to get old (laughs) because (laughs) I think I had an old person vibe when I was younger and it was very confusing. And now I just am old and I all fit together now. Oh, uh, you caught up. <laughs> I caught up. Uh, that's really interesting. And I see that because you have such a, a, such a huge cerebral mind and it comes through in everything you do. I, I feel like if you hadn't been a funny person, you would have been a college professor or a philosopher or <gasps> something yes. like that. What, yes. what do you think? What, I totally what do you think, think you'd so. be? Yeah? Well, my first, the first thing I wanted to be so much was a history professor ah. because I had this incredible history professor at the University of Washington where I went to school and I was his note taker. So I took ancient, medieval, modern every year for four years because the first year I actually oh. took it. And then I was the note taker and you got, I don't think you got 50 bucks a class or maybe it was 25 oh, nice. bucks a class, but it was nice. You had to write up the notes of the class and then distribute them. And um, this is so the old days where you'd go off and type up the notes and then mimeograph them. <laughs> and, um, and I loved him so much, Dr. Bridgman. And I took every class he taught, um, which he happened to be an expert in German history. So I took a lot, all, every class that I could possibly take that he taught, which was mostly, you know, the unification of Germany in 1873. How did Bismarck change Germany? Those kind of classes. Mm-hmm. And um Classes with semicolons in the title. Yeah. And I (laughs) wanted to be him because he was a performer. You know, he would teach these classes. You know, the survey classes would have 700 people in them. And he was funny and he would strut across the stage. And 
he would deliver his lectures and I was just like, that's for me. And in a way I wish I had, I got to live another life. So I could have been that also. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. Cause I kind of see the echoes of that in your monologuing that they're, they are performative. They are uh, entertainment, but they also have this fundamental aspect of education. Yeah. I mean, I do, even though right now with COVID and staying home and I, I'm so happy to be home in spite of all the horrendous stuff that's happening in the world, um, that keeps me up at night, but in the day I'm feeling happy to be home. Um, but I do, and I'm thinking I'm going to stop performing and just write because I'm doing a lot of writing and I'm really loving it. Um, and it takes a lot of energy to perform. You have to get a theater, you have to get an audience, you have to sell tickets, and ugh, it's just a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ideas, I keep having ideas for shows. Like I want to do a show called The Bible is Fascinating, Believe It or Not. And <laughs> I would love to, I was thinking I'd love to do a show just called Androgyny, just talking about the difference, biological differences between men and women and um what we know right now and what we don't know and how different cultures have handled those differences Hmm. and perceive those differences in people, how different cultures have um, some matriarchal, some patriarchal attacked that difficult question of non-binary stuff so differently. And I've done lots and lots of reading about that. And there's a lot of interesting and funny stuff about that. I, it just seems like that would be a fun show to do. Yeah. Is that something you would do with a non-binary performer then? No, I think it would be me like a teacher, you know, like Mm -hmm. I would be explaining what I'd learned and what was funny about it and how we could maybe think of it things differently because it Mm -hmm. wouldn't be just about um, non-binary people. It would be about all of us and our sexuality and how it's reflected in culture and so forth. But mm-hmm. I'm saying that, and while I'm saying it, I'm thinking, don't say that, Julia, because you're never going to do that show. <laughs> <laughs> More with Julia Sweeney still to come. Another new show she's appeared in is called Work in Progress. In it, she plays a fictionalized version of herself who has to answer for the damage done by one of her most well-known Saturday Night Live characters, Pat. More about that after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Until recently, Edmund Hong says he didn't speak out against racism because he was scared. My parents told me not to speak up because they were scared. But I'm tired of this. Listen now on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Julia Sweeney. The comic actor and writer is starring in the TV shows Work in Progress and Shrill, which are airing on Showtime and Hulu, respectively. She's being interviewed by Carrie Poppy, the host of the podcast Oh No, Ross and Carrie. Let's get back into the conversation. Julia is perhaps best known for her work on Saturday Night Live in the early 1990s. Her most recognizable character from that time was Pat, a shy, insecure person who sparks confusion in most people they meet due to their androgynous appearance. In recent years, there's been more vocal criticism of the character. Actor Abby McEnany was one of those people who didn't care for Pat. She created the TV series Work in Progress and wrote a fictionalized version of Julia into the show, where she would meet 
and be confronted by a fictionalized version of Abby. In this clip, Abby is on a date at a restaurant when she sees Julia. Abby is overcome with anxiety about confronting her and passes out at the restaurant. When she comes to, she and Julia meet and talk about Pat. Do you think maybe you should have some water? Oh, no, I have another light. Oh, I, it's mostly water. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, again, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, you don't have to be sorry. We're good. No, I, I do feel, I feel terrible. I just, it's so weird to meet you in real life and be with you. Um, cause your character, like Pat, was just part of my life for so long. Um, in a, in a pretty bad way. So it's just, oh God, look, people suck, right? Yeah, they do. I'm so sorry. I'm fine with it. I'm not fine with it. I feel terrible. I didn't mean it to be mean. I think I, I was really naive. We I think I was, and but now I'm like, ugh. Uh, don't you mean? I think you mean. Oh man! Oh no! Uh, so, how were you approached about this project? Was it already on the page, or was it a conversation? It was just a conversation. Um, Abby came to my. I was working on a one-person show in Chicago at Second City, and I was doing shows every Sunday night. And she came to the show and we met and I loved her so immediately. And she told me that she had also done a one person show about her life and her friend, Tim, who was with her at my show, um, was filming sort of some vignettes from it. We, it wasn't even a pilot then. It was just like, oh, here's a scene. They just kind of described the scene. And I was like, oh, of course I'll do it. And they were so happy. And we mostly, I mean, to me, I just remember how much we all bonded and we had such a similar point of view about everything. Anyway, we filmed that scene. They filmed other scenes. They cut it together. It became a pilot. They were saying it was going to be webisodes. When I shot it, I thought it was just going to be a webisode or something. I didn't even understand. Then they submitted it to Sundance. It got in. And... (laughs) Um, which isn't cra- crazy because they, you know, they take pilots now, but only like 12. And so I went to Sundance and I think Lily Wachowski was on board by then. Um, and we, I pounded the pavement because I was the only name in it, you know, and I got some attention and the, and the, uh, but the main thing is the show itself is so good. I mean, they actually didn't need me or anybody. I mean, the show is so good. And, um, yeah, Showtime bought it. So that's how I kind of ended up an executive producer on it. But because um, I was there at the beginning. That's amazing. So you thought <laughs> yeah. you were making a web series and you end up at Sundance as an EP. Yes. Of the Showtime show. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. I know. I know. It was really, it was amazing. It was amazing. I'm so proud of that show because I love Abby. I think it's a really different show. It's, you know, like, I think it's the, it's just what I know of that, of the gay community. It's, it, it rings true to me from my own experience and from Abby and her friends and, and compared to a lot of other gay themed shows, it seemed like so much mm-hmm. more real. And um, I just, I'm so proud to be associated with it. And I, have a little part in it. And, you know, I'm an executive producer, but really it's more of a title. I, I really just kind of, I'm happy to be around it. That's like a Hollywood story that almost never happens, something like that. And 
it's just, I'm just so happy that happened to Abby and I'm so that happy that it happened to me. Yeah, that strikes me as, um, I mean, a little bit brave. I'm sorry to use the word, but a little <laughs> brave to sort of face your, the criticism of your own character head on in that way. Um, well, I, for me, it was an opportunity because I started hearing the grumblings about Pat. And I, of course, I felt really defensive. And I'm still somewhat defensive because I think people misunderstood the character. But I also think... I misunderstood the community also. Like I, I get mm. everything that negative that I've read, except for when people think that I was trying to um, humiliate people who were androgynous. That's absolutely not what I was doing. That That is completely not what I was trying to do in any way. Um, mm. But I, but I would say of all the criticism I've read, I just read it and think I agree with you a hundred percent. I think mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. Um, and in a way, though, it's such a wonderful sign of how America has changed. Because mm -hmm. it's kind of mm -hmm. like, actually, I just read this in a note, but I was going through, because I write my journal, I'm a big journal writer. And I was going through one, I was looking for stand-up ideas for something last week. And I saw a thing that Michael had said to me, my husband, Michael, saying is the day that Pat is not funny at all is the day that America has finally grown up. <laughs> Which is true. That's absolutely true. And I thought that was such a good insight. It, it, the fact that it was so popular shows you the problem. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. It's just, it's very modest of you to see it that way. Well, I, I mean, part of it was that I was trying to do something that no one realizes I was trying to do. Because to me, Pat isn't non-binary. Pat mm -hmm is male or female, but is oblivious to how Pat comes off to other people. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought the joke was. So to me, that was funny. I actually still think that's funny. But, and then, the, and then of course the laughing was people seeing other people who were as confused as them and uncomfortable. And then that Pat was so oblivious to that uncomfortableness. That's right. where I found the comedy. But of course that's kind of getting into the weeds of the comic, you know, construction of it. It is true that it was, you know, laughing at somebody that you couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman, you know, like, mm -hmm. and that's also true, you know, and that is a terrible byproduct of what I understood of what I was doing, but I didn't really understand. So mm -hmm. I've had my own education. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that there is a way to see, in particular, it's Pat, the film, um, a way to see that as making fun of society's preoccupation with gender. Yes. Um, yes. They, I mean, one of, one of the characters literally goes insane because yes. he can't figure out um, Pat's gender. And Pat, of course, doesn't care as Pat shouldn't. Right. Um, uh, and I, and I totally see that, that point of view and that intention in there. I wonder then if, if some of the problem is that comedy can be used in so many ways. It can be used as a cudgel. It can be used as satire. It can be used to uplift. It can be used to bring down. So it, it kind of hands this tool to anyone who will take it. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it worked on many levels. Like, looking back on it, I think, well, now I understand so much more about the patriarchy. I mean, like, I did not understand cultural history like I should have but when I was doing it. And so I had an instinct for it. Like for me, 
I don't really care if men, people are men or women. I mean, I don't, I, I was shocked that people cared that much, whether Pat mm-hmm. was a man or a woman. So in some ways I was on the side of who cares, who mm-hmm. cares. Julia Sweeney, thank you for coming to Bullseye. Thank you so much, Gary. Julia Sweeney. Catch her on Hulu's Shrill or Showtime's Work in Progress. You can see her on stage when stage performances are again a thing. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced from the homes of the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where the Maximum Fun team ordered a cameo for our colleague KT Wigman's birthday. The subject of that cameo video message? Eve, the cow star from Kelly Reichert's First Cow. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.